Online with us now is Ava. Ava is eight years old. So, Ava, tell us about the problem you solved. Well, I like to read a lot, and I will also read in the bathtub, and sometimes my books will get wet, and I just don't like my books all wet. Yeah, because they get all dimply and weird, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to read when they do that. Can, can you tell us uh, how, how, you, uh, how you got around this problem? What it is is, like, um, like you take a suction cup and you stick it to the wall, and then I took a tractable dog leash, and the suction cup has a hook on it. And so what you do is you hang the dog leash from the suction cup, and then we have a rubber band, and what you do is you hook the leash onto the rubber band and take the rubber band and put it around some pages of the book ahead of where you are. Uh-huh. And so then so you'll lock it, and so if you drop it, the dog leash will catch it, and it won't fall. So the the you you pick the length and the book uh is it when if you drop it it never falls below the leash and it never hits the water. Exactly. That's brilliant. Wow. So you're using the same kind of technology that mountain climbers use basically so they don't fall off mountains. Really? Yeah, it's the same principle. And I also I do like to rock climb. Oh, maybe that's where you got this idea. Little bit. This is How Did Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, how to make it in Seattle. And we'll give you tips on how to accessorize your military uniform. You're going to look great. But first, police in Moscow say they've captured an American spy. Now, this spy in particular, Ryan Fogel is his name, and he seems uh, maybe really, really bad at spying. Yeah, the Russians caught him uh, at night wearing a hat. A blonde wig. A and ridiculous, a ridiculous blonde wig. Yes, and sunglasses. Yeah, which you shouldn't wear at night. On the line with us now to help us understand what happened is former FBI agent Eric O'Neill. Now, Eric, you may know his name. He went undercover to catch Robert Hansen, who was uh, spying for the Russians. Now, Eric, one of the things that Ryan Fogel had with him, according to Russians, was a letter inviting this other guy to give up secrets. Do spies normally carry letters? <laughs> well... They do. Let's look back at the uh, Robert Hansen case, which I'm intimately uh, knowledgeable about. Right. And you go through all the letters, which I have in detail, between Hansen and his Russian handlers. They all start with, dear friend, the, Ru- the letters from the Russians, uh, and end with your friends. If you look at this letter, it's the same. Dear friend, and end with your friends. Now, yeah. you know, correlation isn't causation, and, and it may be more of a coincidence than not, but I really doubt that this letter was drafted by the United States. It, it seems to me to be a plant. Now, I can't confirm that, and I don't know it for sure, but, uh, but the letter is, is somewhat interesting in the way that it's written, and the fact that it's written very much like the letters that the Russians wrote to Robert Hansen. So you're saying that this, you don't think it's true that this guy's an American spy. You think the Russians have set this up? Well, yes and no. Here's what I think. It's quite possible he was CIA. Now, was he uh, a 29-year-old CIA officer that was tasked with recruiting a, uh, a, a very high-level FSB agent? I'm not sure I buy that. Um, it's more likely to me, for whatever reason, the Russians chose to uh, take him down, plant some of this stuff on him, and embarrass the United States. Um, I'm just not buying the the blonde wig and the table full of props that look like they came out of a 1990 spy movie. 
Yeah, it's like it's it's like a whole spy kit. I mean, what about that rang true to you, and what what didn't? All those things that he had laid laid out on that table. Right. Well, nothing really rang true. <laughs> I mean, if he's if he's on station in Moscow, he's not going to need a compass and a map. He's going to know where he's going. And if he's if he is walking as a surveillance detection route, he's going to know exactly where he's going and exactly uh, where he's going to end up. He doesn't really need aides to help him. Uh, the, the the sort of costume and and that sort of thing is are are not typical, at least in my experience. Well, so Eric, maybe you can tell us then, um, what is, what do you bring in your spy kit when you go on a mission like this? <laughs> well, look, when, if I were on a mission, I would bring as little as possible that could identify, identify me as a spy, for, for one. Um, I'm going to have most of the information I need memorized in my head, I, so I'm definitely not going to be carrying around a map book and a compass. Um, you know, I might have the sort of props that would make me look like a tourist or someone going to a nightclub or someone that should be in the area that I'm in. So it makes sense that I'm there. Would you ever, like uh, Dr. Richard Kimball in The Fugitive, use a shoe polish to color your hair? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know if I would. I think that someone could smell that from uh, pretty far away. Uh, there are better ways to do it, and that's why history has, has shown the best, the best way to, uh, to manage these meets is with the clandestine drops that uh, are set up to exchange information so that the, uh, the agent is never with his handler uh, at the same time. So the, spy, the two spies are never in the same place. Uh, are you someone who knows about uh, dead drops? Uh, quite a bit. I mean, when, uh, in the FBI, I was a counterintelligence uh, and counterterrorism specialist. What's, uh, what's the cleverest one you've ever seen? Or heard of. Um, some of the more fun ones, of course, are a fake rock somewhere out in the woods where uh, it, the, um, the American who had turned would, would go out into the woods and, and leave the information in a fake rock, and the Russian would later just go for, through, for a stroll through the park and pick it up. And, of course, you had Robert Hansen, who was shoving documents in uh, pla- black uh, plastic wrapped with duct tape under a footbridge. In a lot of movies, you'll see a guy, he'll, he'll hide something somewhere under a rock, under a bench, and then he'll put a, like a, a piece of chalk marking mm-hmm, That's on called something. a signal, right. That's a signal. So like, are you ever out in the world and you see a chalk marking and you think, oh, there's a dead drop somewhere around here? Oh, all the time. I, you know, my training was any time we, were, we weren't on duty and we were in Washington, D.C., we were supposed to keep our eyes open for things like that. Uh, and, and it was a big... It was a big success to identify an unknown signal site um, and be able to um, to report it back and and, uh, and see if we could catch someone using it. Wait, they're really they're all over the place. Sure, I mean D.C. is the spy capital of the world. Uh, if you know what to look for and you sit long enough, you're you're going to see something happening. Well, Eric, this has been great. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Eric O'Neill is the founding partner of the Georgetown Group. Hey guys, this is Debbie from Salt Lake City, Utah. I just got accepted to a PhD program in Seattle, Washington, and I have to move there this summer. So how do I move to a place like Seattle? Does it rain all the time? Do I need to stock up on flannel? I mean... Can you give me some info, maybe, that would help me? Well, thanks. 
Right. Debbie does not sound excited about moving to Seattle. We're really sorry, Debbie. You know, Seattle is a great place, and I think we can help. Yeah, we're, uh, Paul Brenner is a guide with the Underground City Tours in Seattle. Hey, uh, Paul, let's start here. So Debbie, uh, first of all, is concerned about flannel. Oh, man, Debbie. Well, you know, flannel is always a safe choice here in Seattle, but i got to tell you, grunge, and although it is making a bit of a comeback, I guess Soundgarden had some kind of a reunion. Ah. Really? We've switched from the from the wild uh, the days of grunge, and we're now into the uh, more of the uh, 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 kind of the zombie hipster in Patagonia or uh, North Face. You really ought to get yourself some sort of microfiber black, preferably uh, outerwear, and you'll fit right in anywhere you go. So, so if so, if you show up in a flannel shirt tied around the waist, people are going to realize, oh, that Debbie came from somewhere else. She she doesn't really know. Seattle. No, nah, they're they're not going to bat an eye. You know, okay. they're going to think, "Wow, you know that that gal is hanging on." Okay. <laughs> okay, so Debbie, so Debbie gets there. Uh-huh. What's what would you recommend uh, as something that she could do then to kind of experience Seattle? That's not the typical tourist uh, thing. I think you've got to find a local coffee shop, bookstore, preferably near an independent film house. And uh, go there on a rainy day, which won't be hard to do because it rains here a lot. And you're going to see the the real culture here in Seattle, I think, because that's pretty much what we do. We read books, we go to movies, we drink coffee. Is this all code for don't go to Starbucks? Is that what you're saying? Well, I wouldn't want to be the the guy that does that because, you know, you don't don't want to draw the ire of the the great corporate behemoths. But uh, I'm pretty much saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you mentioned the rain, and it does seem like it's so cliche yeah. uh, that it's rainy in Seattle. But in places where there are, like, where there's extreme weather, a lot of uh-huh. the people who are locals will kind of dress or go out in the face of that weather. Like, they won't wear a big heavy coat if it's super cold out and they're used to that, just to be tough. Do you carry an umbrella when it rains in Seattle? Oh, or are that's you too- a wonderful question. Yeah. No, you know, you, can re- you really ID yourself as being not from around these parts if you're carrying the umbrella. Particularly to sporting events. Never take an umbrella to a sporting event. You know, you open that thing up and you're going to have the three rows behind you really screaming because they can't see. Right. So, like I said earlier, you need to invest before you come, hopefully, in a, in a nice outerwear with a hood. Get a hood. Not a hoodie, but some sort of a, a, a hood on your, your rain jacket. Now, I this is going to be a pretty uninformed question, but I've I've heard that uh, Seattle, that the way the city is built, that it... it it's different than other cities, and, and that's about as much as I know. Can, can you explain to me how, how Seattle was made? Sure, I'd love to. And I, and I think you guys are from Chicago, right? That's, that's right. right. Well, you can relate to this because we had a big fire as well. And although ours wasn't started by a cow kicking over a lantern, All right. uh, it was actually by a glue pot boiling over in yeah. 1889, uh, June 6th, 1889. It's been a particularly dry spring that year, in fact. It two or three days in a row without rain. Temperatures are zooming up into the 60s. The city built almost entirely out of wood originally. 30 square blocks, about 64 acres of business burnt to the ground. And we rebuilt the city, and in so doing, we created a, an underground, uh, primarily because the business community was in such haste to get their buildings back up. Uh, they couldn't wait for the city to come in with the streets. So eventually the streets were raised around and above the first floors of existing buildings, and, and that created this bizarre underworld section or underground section of Seattle. So when you're when you're walking around uh, Seattle uh, as it is today, and, and you're looking at buildings, w- w- is there 
you know, evidence that you can see that Seattle is unusual, that it was built in this, this weird way? Well, you know, the first thing you're going to notice in our sidewalks, I think if you're very observant at all, as you're walking around the Pioneer District, is there's an awful lot of purple glass embedded in the sidewalk. And on closer inspection, you're going to realize that these are skylights. And uh, indeed, when you're on the purple glass, you're standing over the underground section of the city. There's something underground beneath your feet. I think that would be a, a real giveaway. Do you do you guys have a word for the the city underground? Is I don't know. Does it have a a place name? Ah, gosh, I'm not so sure. Um, sometimes it's referred to as the underworld. Oh, because uh, there was a an era of time when when <laughs> all manner of underworldly type things were going on down there. Yeah, it see, I mean, it seems like kind of tailor made for uh, bad deeds, things you want to keep secret. Exactly. I mean, you've, you've got a city that's a port city full of sailors at one time, gold prospectors, uh, lumberjacks, mill workers, and you've created in that type of city during the Wild West era, the Gold Rush era, you've just created for yourself a subterranean, dimly lit, and seldom policed area. I always tell people, you know, you could buy things down there, but it wasn't an I Love Seattle t-shirt. One of Debbie's questions is about where she uh, should live. Like, where's a good place to rent? Could she live underground in a place? That's really discouraged, I think. Is it? Uh, you know, i got to be honest with you, and I don't want to uh, turn you off here, but the part of the underground that, that we uh, tour through is, uh, well, you know, it's, it used to be condemned. It was uh, rat-infested, disease-prone, and to this day it's strewn with uh, debris and all manner of other things laying around down there to trip over and, and uh, hurt yourself on. So it's, it's not a real livable place. Well, this is great. Thank you so much, Paul. Well, I hope I'm helpful, and I and I hope the 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 woman moving from uh, is it Utah? Yeah, that's right, Debbie. Yeah. I hope she I hope she has a good time here in Seattle. You know, we we welcome people not exactly with open arms, but you know, eventually we'll acknowledge that you're here and bring you into the fold. So, well, yeah, maybe. Do you have any piece of advice, like if people are maybe a little tentative to embrace somebody who's new? Any way to kind of for Debbie to break the ice? Well, let me see. Yeah, get a get a Mariners ball cap. Get okay. it kind of dirty and wrinkled and wear that. That just shows that you're part of the Seattle spirit, which started with our founding father, Arthur Denny, back in 1851 when he started the, the town right here on the mud flat against everybody's objections in his little party. Did he have but a no, Mariner's hat? He didn't have a Mariner's hat, but he had what we call Seattle spirit, which is very simply this. No matter how imbecilic your plan turns out to be, you just stick with it. <laughs> that explains a lot, and I think the Mariners can be explained by I uh, saw a screenshot uh, this week. I forget where it was, but it was a military guy uh, in uniform, and on his arm he had this weird patch. Um, and I, I don't feel like I can do it justice without any music. So let's bring up some music. So the, this patch, uh, his official—it's an official military patch—and on the patch it says, "Someone call Kenny Loggins because you're in the danger zone." It seems crazy that these military guys would have something that seems so non-military stitched onto their uniforms. Right. Joining us now is Trevor Paglin. He has looked into all these badges. He wrote a book about it called I Could Tell You, But Then You Would Have to Be Destroyed by Me. It's a good title. So, Trevor, can you tell us where a badge like this comes from? <laughs> Absolutely. You've seen a, a classic example of, of something they call a, a Friday patch or a morale patch. All and right. There's a there's a tradition in, in various parts of the military where you know, there's there'll be something like casual Friday, but instead of taking off your tie, 
you would change out uh, one or several of the patches on your uniform. A lot of times on your uniform, the, the patches will be Velcroed on there so you can take it off. A lot of times, guys in these units will make uh, collectively a, a patch that is often humorous, that they feel uh, represents themselves better than what the official patch for their unit might be. And and they'll take to wearing these things uh, informally or wearing them on Fridays or whenever they can get away with it. So so what are what are some of the other ones that uh, other Friday patches that are out there? There's an enormous number of them out there. This is a really a huge genre. Um, some of them are quite dark. One that comes immediately to mind was a patch from that I saw several years ago. It's a patch that shows the Grim Reaper sitting at a, a missile launch silo with his finger on the button and he's wearing like bunny slippers like uh you know like pajama bunny slippers yeah. Grim reaper is and the, the the slogan on it says death wears bunny slippers <laughs> and it, it, it's very strange it turns out the story behind it is that it, it was a friday patch made by missile crews who would sit in the bottom of missile silos in wyoming with you know literally their finger on the button to launch a nuclear missile and the story was that they would get when they would get ready for work they'd put their uniforms on and then descend into the silo and once they got down there they didn't really have anything to do and they were sitting there for quite a long amount of time so they would the uniforms would slowly come off and they would end up kind of in their pajamas and wearing their bunny slippers with their fingers on the button so they had cooked up this patch wow death wears bunny slippers well it seems also that you know a lot of guys in the military are are doing jobs that they don't want other people to know about you know the top secret Mm -hmm. stuff so how do those guys go about, uh, I don't know, representing in their patches? What's funny, yeah, as we know, there's huge parts of the military that are secret. And we sometimes call this the black part of the military, people working on black projects and top secret clearances and that sorts of things. Uh, immediately, a patch called uh, Desert Prowler comes to mind. It's a, it's a program that I've seen several different versions of. On one version, it has a figure of a... It's a, it's a yellow and orange patch. It has a kind of a demonic figure on it. And there's an image of a crow. There's an image of six stars. And the image of the six stars kind of strongly led me to believe that that meant that this was a uh, UAV that was being tested at Area 51. Area 51 is often referred to by a collection of six stars, as in five plus one. Now, this is a patch that I couldn't really make a lot of sense of. Um, I published it, 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 published a version of it in, in my book. And a lot of people wrote to me and said, hey, that, that demon on this patch is from uh, something called the Insane Clown Posse. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite patches uh, is something that took me a long time to find. It was for an outfit at uh, U.S. Space Command, you know, the guys who do all the outer space operations. And there was a a group of guys that were working in a secure facility there. I'm still not exactly sure what they were doing. Um, But they made a patch for themselves that, um, that said, Alien Technology Exploitation Division. And uh, then they had a picture of an alien with a chain um, around its neck as if it's being pulled somewhere. And then it had this very mysterious writing at the bottom. It didn't really make any sense. Um, I ended up being in touch with, uh, one, with one of the guys who designed this patch and, and talking to him a lot about it. And he, he explained that the Klingon, that the, that the strange writing at the bottom was Klingon and that it said, don't ask. 
Well, when you think about all the, the lengths they go to to protect secrets in the military, it's amazing to me that you could compromise a mission or at least raise questions because you made a patch that commemorated it. Well, yeah. I mean, there actually was a memo about this very funnily enough. Um, when the when the I Could Tell You book was was coming out, there was a number of patches in the book that were references to National Reconnaissance Office launches and spacecraft, classified spacecraft. And at the time, you could really actually tell quite a lot about a spacecraft mission from looking at the patch. The satel- secret satellites, or any satellite for that matter, does never really operates alone. They operate in, in a team or group of other satellites that's called a constellation. Um, so you always have satellites working in tandem. And oftentimes on the mission patches for an upcoming National Reconnaissance Office launch or secret satellite launch, you would have a depiction of uh, various stars, and the stars would actually refer to the number of other spacecraft in a constellation. You would have a, um, oftentimes a a trajectory of an orbit depicted on the patch, and oftentimes those trajectories were accurate. So you could look at a patch and look at, you know, the symbols on it, and you could tell, oh, well, this has got to be this kind of satellite. It's, you know, adding to this constellation, and it's got to be in this kind of orbit because that's what's shown on the patch. And oftentimes these things were very, very accurate. When the book was about to come out, the National Reconnaissance Office actually issued a memo saying that, uh, you know, some journalists have been looking at our patches and have discovered operational details about uh, what we're doing from that. So this is a uh, memo to everybody to say that you can't have any details in the patches that might uh, in any way refer to uh, operational aspects of ongoing missions. Well, Trevor, thanks so much for talking us through this. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me on the air today. We got a note from Esther, who's a nanny in Minneapolis. Now, Esther says uh, she listens to our show when the kids are at school and she's, you know, folding laundry and stuff like that. Esther, these next 15 seconds are for you. If you want this choice position, have a cherry disposition. You know, I, it's a shame that uh, Michael Jackson in, in Smooth Criminal doesn't say, uh, Nanny, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay, Nanny? You play that instead. Yeah. You know, also in the the bands of the weight, it'd be awesome if they said, "Take a load off, Nanny." Yeah, let's let's do that. Take a load off, Nanny. Take a load for free. And once again, Esther, these forty-five minutes have been for you. We are still collecting your Toilets of the Week. Get your nominations to howto at npr.org. Leslie is nominating a toilet at Boheme in Houston. She's there right now. Leslie, can can you tell us about your toilet? It's just a normal bathroom, um, but they have a one of those Japanese toilet seats on the toilet. So it's one of those toilet seats that will, um, if you press a little button, it'll wash you, it'll dry you, and it'll even like heat the seat. Um, I just think it's really funny that it's in a bar. You know, I'm sure like tons of people are like playing around with it when they get a little tipsy. Sure, or, yeah. You know, one time I came in into the restroom and the 
the seat was like totally hot, but everything's, um, all of the buttons are in Japanese, so I didn't know how to turn it off. So, um, <laughs> you really could see things going wrong with the with the toilet that I you know has a built-in bidet. You could see things going yeah. very very badly in there late at night. Yeah, yeah, in a public restroom. I mean, it's funny. Do you do you have any idea why uh, they chose to have uh, this incredibly smart toilet in their bar restroom? Um, I could ask someone. Yeah, do you want to, so you're on the cell phone, do you want to just take us out and, and find somebody outside the bathroom and see if they know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. Totally. Hold on just one second. Sure. Why you guys have that Japanese toilet seat? Yeah, she says that um, the owner, um, he just, yeah, collects things from around the world and, and just collected it, put it here. Wow, that that far exceeds any souvenir I've ever brought home from anywhere. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, uh, this sounds great. I uh, Congratulations, you have our Toilet of the Week. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? I learned they have casual Friday in the military. Yeah, that does seem surprising for people who wear uniforms all the time to have casual casual uniforms. I've, although you think about it, like Hawaiian shirt Friday, depending on where you were, that could be really good camo. If there was a, a battle where there were lots of tropical flowers, you'd never see a guy in a Hawaiian shirt. I mean, it, 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 it's surprising to me that my four-year-old son... And then some high-ranking guy in the military both love patches. I know. You think, like, uh, if you met, like, one of those generals, like, one of the joint chiefs, and they have those, that big thing of, of badges and, and medals on their uh, on their chest, yeah. that maybe if you got real close, that was just their sticker collection. They were just showing it off. Yeah, I, I bet if you scratch a Medal of Honor, it smells like pizza. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Hega with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Evan Weiss. It's his birthday. That's what we expect from our interns. That we need, that's the one requirement is that they age one year per year. During the week they intern for us. And no more. Send us your questions at howto at npr.org. Our website is howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks.